Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode one of the Marketing Moment with Deviant Partners. David Berry here on this side of the screen, Nicole Williams on this side or on your microphones. The second voice you'll hear, Nicole, say hello. Hi, guys. So this is our first in, an, in a series that we're going to be delivering on a, on a weekly basis. And the goal is, as an e-com agency, which is what we are, our goal is to connect with fellow business owners and CMOs and decision makers as it relates to e-com and marketing for their businesses. But it's not strictly going to be pedantic you know, news and stuff like that and talking about KPIs. We're going to have, we will talk about those things, but we're going to have a little fun also talking about the things that are going on in our industry. Spoiler alert, one of those things today will be iOS 14, which is finally, finally rolling out in all of its uh, not so glory glory. Um, and then we're also going to talk about some of the, you know, the, the meat and potatoes of e-com. And then we finish it off with some marketing malfunctions, which is a great time for us to disagree politely about certain things that brands and um, these verticals that we're watching uh, are making. And so from, from our perspective, you know, why should you listen to our podcast or watch our videos? So as I mentioned, we're Deviant Partners. I'm David Berry and I'm the founder of the agency. We've been around for five years. We had our birthday last week. And this is our shtick. We grow e-com businesses for the brain and body. Said another way, if your customers learn it, wear it, or eat it, we help you sell it. So mm -hmm. if you feel that that is something that resonates for, for your vertical, we do a lot of work in skincare, apparel, and fashion, and by virtue of the brain, higher education, and, uh, and different verticals in the education space. So if those fit for you, this is going to be a good place for you. And if they don't, you're just, you know, tangent excuse me, tangentially related to those verticals and those spaces, uh, we're confident you'll have some things to pick up too. So that is the intro and probably way more information than you cared to hear. But Nicole, I'm going to hand it over to you to, uh, to take everybody through what it is that we're going to be talking about today. Of course. So first, we're going to kick off with the Digital Dash, which is our top news stories in digital marketing this week. So a lot of these kind of headlines are sourced from local marketing blogs or even LinkedIn, uh, things that are trending and things that are hot this week. So to kick off with today's episode, uh, first headline, is Clubhouse the new Shark Tank? So summary here is both entrepreneurs and investors are using Clubhouse's platform to create investment opportunities. So what does that mean, how it works? As you know, uh, Clubhouse is an invite-only platform right now, um, and it's available only to Apple users currently. So it is an exclusive club of sorts. It is invite only, very similar to Facebook and how it first began. Um, so with that being said, with Clubhouse, basically angel investors have become a collective unit and they're hosting their own channels right now uh, within that platform. And what they do is they're actually hosting like, their own version of Shark Tank in which they have people that apply. Um, they'll also pick out people from their Clubhouse audience to put them on the spot and they will have an hour long verbal exchange, no visuals. So it's just strictly an organic conversation between founders and investors, which occurs. Um, and afterwards, the angels who are scattered around the world, uh, they retreat to a private back channel on Slack where they then chat about any pitches that they think are viable investments. So the gimmick is if one angel writes a check, they all write a check. So why is this happening? Basically, the benefit is the angel group offers investments directly, making funding more accessible for startups, huge ventures, and also for angels, the so venture capitalists, it helps them build new connections as well that land new deals. So I think the thing to kind of discuss now is, David, what are your thoughts on using this channel for venture capitalism? It's, it's interesting to hear that. So I, I had not heard that, but I'm also not surprised by it because 
as some of my friends who are using Clubhouse a lot more than I am, I have used it. They are calling it uh, crack house instead of Clubhouse for, <laughs> for the reason that they're addicted. These rooms are popping up left and right, and it's kind of easy to find things around specific subjects that you care about. So angel investing being an obvious one, the people on the receiving end are looking for access to these people they probably otherwise wouldn't get. And I think that's what's interesting and appealing about Clubhouse is how accessible the, the that everybody is. I've had some conversations on there about e-commerce and was able to connect offline with somebody from Canada, actually, who started a business in making golf more accessible to younger generations. So for exactly. new, you know, new first-time golfers, it can be a, a price prohibitive sport to enter. You know, some people think that they've got to spend you know, $700 on a a set of clubs and then there's the balls and the bag and all this other stuff. And so he's trying to make golf a little bit more accessible and we, and we spoke about it. So I, I think that there's a lot of potential there and like a lot of things, it'll ultimately depend on how much time people choose to invest in it and, and be intentional about it. The good news is I don't think these angel investors are going to hand out checks if they haven't done their homework on these individuals. And honestly, if it, if it, lowers the wall, the barriers to entry between organ or brands or institutions trying to secure outside funding and the angel investors who are trying to find them, then, then I think this is a good thing. Agreed. I like that. Good outlook. Uh-huh. Um, All right. We agree. We'll save the disagreements for later. This one, yeah. I feel like I need a mallet. Okay. So headline two. This one is in regards to Amazon, one of our favorite platforms. So Amazon tests letting sellers email customers directly about new products and sales. So what that means, Amazon is testing a new feature for sellers that will let them contact customers directly by email to notify them of new things like product announcements or sales. The tool will be called manage your customer engagement tool. So the logistics are of this. It is a little bit finicky because Amazon is still not allowing businesses data or first party data into their own customers. So yeah, obviously I'm gonna, businesses. I'm gonna dive in there and tell you my suspicion is that will also never happen. They're still serving as a gatekeepers more or less. So how it works, companies will only be able to contact Amazon users who have specifically chosen to follow a particular company, and Amazon, not the sellers, will be the one to actually send out the promotional emails. So again, Amazon is not giving sellers a blank check access to customers' portals and contact information. So again, Businesses will still no longer have direct visibility into it, as we just discussed. And the email campaign option is a free service for sellers, but it's only available to brands registered through Amazon's brand registry program. So what that means is it has to be their own proprietary brand. You can't be like a third-party vendor or seller selling someone else's product in order to push these promotions or use the tool. So thoughts? Well, uh, look, we'll put it this way. I mean, there's... As an e-commerce agency in our own right, we recognize you either embrace Amazon or you get run over by them. And, you know, we (laughs) have a lot of brands who are generating, you know, at least 50% of their sales through Amazon. And and it kind of is what it is. We know that users are going to go there. And so I think you're you're missing out on, on sales. And we can talk another day about the semantics of giving away so much data and power to this giant, but it's kind of the game that we play in the short term while we figure out something long term. So I, I like the fact that Amazon is giving people more access to communicate with, um, you know, with customers in a way that's probably valuable to them. And I imagine that SMS text messaging is going to be an add on to this at some point. I'm sure that that's not too far behind. So it's kind of like, 
yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's also not so great because we're still beholden to Amazon for the foreseeable future. But it is it is kind of what it is. You got to take your medicine and and swallow it, even if you don't like how it tastes, and uh, <laughs> and play nice with Amazon. But it's all in all, it's good for for businesses who are already there. We'll put it that way. Definitely agree. Got to play in their sandbox. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, I did find this from a different source. So this was from Ad Age. They said having kind of their own spin to the story, the move comes as Apple prepares to make it harder for brands to target iPhone users with personalized ads. So this, or the timing of this update is very interesting from Amazon's side because they're kind of playing into, again, the email marketing, which is going to be an increasingly important component in the digital marketing toolbox, especially as web tightens up on privacy. Um, That's definitely something we're gonna jump into in just a bit, but right before that, Our next headline is the last one for today, and that is Apple's new software update means big changes to ad tracking. So this finally launched yesterday. What happened is the app tracking transparency update on iOS 14 now makes all apps required to ask a user permission to track the activity across the internet. So users have to opt in as to whether they want their data tracked or not. Um, This is something that's been in mainstream media, not just for us as marketers. Um, And why this is happening in terms of Apple and Tim Cook, who is a CEO, He mentioned two points. One, technology does not need vast troves of personal data stitched together across dozens of websites and apps in order to succeed. And number two, if a business is built on misleading users, on data exploitation, on choices that are no or that are not choices at all, then deserves not or does it not deserve our praise? You know what I mean. This quote's kind of all (laughs) over the place. Yeah, I hear you. From his keynote, Um, but he says that basically the whole entire thing deserves reform. So. Interesting note on how this could potentially backfire. I do want to add this before I do ask for your commentary, David. Of course. (laughs) Apple's aggressive privacy measures are putting competitors on the back foot, but they could also invite even more antitrust scrutiny to its dominance of the app economy. So that is directly from one of our sources, which I believe is Morning Brew. Mm -hmm. Um, So that said, I think that's also the perfect segue into our topic of the week, which is digital analytics. But I do want to hear your thoughts on just kind of overarching changes. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, like, if you take away the source for a second, that technology doesn't need vast troves of personal data, you know, to succeed. I agree with that in principle. But then when you consider the source is essentially, you know, like a whole bunch of ego competitions between Apple and Google and Facebook, Mm -hmm. and Amazon, I, I take everything that these jerks say with a grain of salt. Which <laughs> they're, what oh, they, you're going to say, because yeah. we're on, yeah, that's what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly how I feel about it. They, they want to squeeze, <laughs> exactly. they want to squeeze one another out of the picture. And the person with the most control has the most power. We just talked about Amazon doing mm-hmm. their absolute best to communicate, you know, through sellers, give the users uh, or, or the brands in this case, a little bit more of the, the crack cocaine that's going to keep them my second reference to that, uh, that's going to keep <laughs> the brands addicted to their platform, right? Apple's mm-hmm. essentially doing the same thing, which is we're, we're going to collect all of your data ourselves. You can trust us. First party data is much safer with us. I mean, if people were even aware of the terms of agreement in terms of service that they're signing with Apple to begin with, I mean, they, they would never trust a word that came out of Tim Cook's mouth about data privacy and data security. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's BS um, in terms of his, his reasoning. However, at a basic level, I do agree on the value of securing personal data for users. But I would also venture to say that none of the big four companies that I just mentioned are doing anything to actually make that happen. What they're doing is, is serving their own interests. And 
God bless them because <laughs> we're playing in their sandbox. God bless. <laughs> um, agreed. Um, so I guess with that point, with privacy regulations and the ad space hunkering down, what forms of digital advertising supplements that gap in data that we're less likely to receive over time? Yeah, um, so we're on the topic of the week now. Yeah, let's move on. So yeah. I do have three points written down sure. of that. Um, I think partnerships will be very big. Uh, people leaning in on influencer campaigns will be very big. And of course, email marketing, they can come back. It's always been there. It's kind of a silent killer. But I feel like when we're working with clients, are we really focusing on email marketing? Or is it more so, again, those attribution types of kind of brand awareness plugs, if you will? Um, there's a lot that we focus on in that side of the pipeline. But the loyalty and the nurturing campaigns will definitely be more leveraged, I think, moving forward. But your thoughts? Yeah, I think I do agree that like partnerships uh, and collaborations are, are going to continue to be important influencers. I know it's sort of a dirty word in this space because I think rightly a lot of them have gotten uh, a bad name. But I also blame brands for that because they're not deciding to actually invite in actual relationships and partnerships with their influencers. They're just handing them you know, a box of free product and going on their merry way. Right. Um, good influencer campaigns, I think, are going to be a useful workaround, as, as is email marketing and SMS, which, frankly, I think is the bigger tie-in here. First-party data is always the most valuable data, and the privacy regulations do not prevent brands from collecting effective first-party data, which is essentially just another way of saying, if you have something good to sell, if you have a good story to share, and, and you give users an honest quality experience, people still want to give away their information. I mean, I know I'm a marketer and and I'm probably the most sensitive to being retargeted by someone who's annoying me or or getting you know un you know unquestioned emails repeatedly. But I do sign up for for brands that I really like and and care about their products and services. And the brands who continue to do that and not try to pull a fast one and, and use people's data responsibly are not really going to lose out significantly. Yes, they're going to miss on some of the the click obsession that they have with attribution, which I know we're going to talk about here in a second. But mm -hmm. I, I do think generally speaking, the forms of digital advertising that supplements the gap. Um, yeah, we talked about a few, but I don't think there's any change in the channels that are still going to work. And I'm going to generalize here, but people go to Google to find things uh, either by, you know, that they know by name or by idea, right? So if I'm looking for a blue bicycle, I'll go to Amazon and I'll try to find a blue bicycle. So that behavior is not going to change because the data tracking is different. So the channels are still correct. It's just the user, I'm sorry, the advertisers can't be so reliant on third-party data because it's it's cheap and it's lazy and and users, you know, frankly don't want that sort of collection of their data. They want to opt in of their own free will, but only with brands that they actually trust to uh, to give them good experiences for it in exchange. For sure. Um, so going into attribution in that debate, because that's something very hot within our agency. Yeah. Do companies need to stop obsessing over data, especially with these changes coming about in the market? Should Hell they work on building their brand or focusing more on brand awareness campaign objectives or anything with these upcoming changes? Yeah, I, this, this obsession with attribution has, has become <laughs> like a bane of our existence as, as agency workers. Um, and I don't mean that at the denigration of anybody, right? I, I was somebody who, you know, even a few years ago in my career, thought that that was one of the real values of targeted social advertising, targeted digital advertising, 
TV, for example, you could run a spot and you never knew who necessarily like responded and reacted because of the ad, whereas digital and social, that was unique, right? It's like, well, yeah, I can tell you exactly who clicked on it. Well, guess what? 90% or more of people who respond or react to an ad never clicked on the ad. So there, that's one of the first you know, major gaps in attribution. And it also, I guess, emboldens you to make short-sighted decisions that if you're only relying on the things that you can click and track, then you're completely ignorant to the other things that are very, very valuable to the purchase decision process that you're ignoring. And, you know, you and I, for example, um, I mean, I'll use the, the microphones that we're unfortunately not able to use on our first episode, right? We purchased, there we go. Thank you. Good product placement for uh, our friends at, at Blue. They made these nice microphones that we'll <laughs> figure out how to use eventually. But, but we bought three of those to the tune of close to $400, right? How did we come across those? It had nothing to do with the fact that we looked for them by name on Amazon. It had everything to do with the fact that we looked through some peer reviewed articles and they said, this is one of the best, uh, you know, microphones for podcasting. And mm -hmm. there is no attribution, you know, in this blog that connected to Amazon. It wasn't like they had an affiliate program set up or anything like that. So if I'm an advertiser for blue microphones, I'm saying, oh wow, you know, someone typed in blue microphone by name. Well, we must be doing a really great job at SEO. Well, no. Really? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, what we what we found is that other people are, are talking about you and saying credible things. A hundred percent. So, you know, and, and again, that's just one example. But generally speaking, I think this obsession with with attribution is is making a lot of advertisers really blind to the things that they used to really care about that were important. And you started with them. A good brand story, uh, like a product that really solves a problem and the ability to speak the language that your customer speaks by telling them about how it works and no you know amount of optimization is going to make that you know any better like oh well i optimized for purchase instead of click so this is a better campaign like yeah okay <laughs> you might get a little bit of credit for some of those things but at the end of the day that's not how users shop and they don't care about your data they care about getting good products and good experiences from brands that pay attention i agree so last, on that note, to close out our topic of the week, uh, reporting. How much is too much and what are the absolute need-to-know metrics universal to all businesses, knowing everything that you just divulged in with attribution? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, especially with the questions that are going on with attribution right now, I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be, at least in the short term, maybe a consolidated level of reporting for some people. Let's use Facebook as an example. We've already seen this. They had a 28-day attribution window. Now it's seven. Yes. And we also know, I mean, we can't see it yet because the iOS 14 update just rolled out in, in its full depth of, of what it's going to be. But there's probably going to be additional limitations uh, of data that are getting tracked there as well. So you know, I think speaking through the lens of the type of business that we are, the type of agency that we are, we're dealing with e-commerce clients. And generally speaking, I think there's there's a handful of metrics that uh, that are critical. In fact, this is not to sell ourselves, but we're working on a uniform type of report for uh, for all of our clients that is going to help them do exactly that. So I think I think impressions at you know at a very basic level are important as well as reach. You know, you always want to be looking at the the messaging frequency of how often your message is getting in front in front of the right um, customers. And, and that's a good indicator, right? Right. For, for a second, yes, we'll, we'll look at those. I think they're useful. But understanding how often 
the the cash register starts to move after a person has seen your ad enough times is a is a really important indicator. So I would say so I'd say that. I would also say that you certainly want to look at at revenue and cost per purchase, obviously for e-com brands, and finding a way to increase one while dropping the other. More revenue, less cost per purchase, less cost per acquisition. And and I would say you also want to continue to look at, um, and, and granted, I just poo-pooed on all of the attribution metrics um, that people are in love with, but I wouldn't f- you know, f- live and die by them. So the example that I'm about to give is click-through rate, right? It's not the end-all be-all, but it's a very important indicator if people find your content relevant or appropriate or engaging, looking at you know, view-through times on, on videos and, and things like that. So I'd say click-through rate is still relevant. And then... And then lifetime value, that's, that's a really important one that doesn't have anything to do with quote unquote digital attribution and a lot more to do with creating uh, a user experience where the brand stays in touch and keeps listening to their customers and then offers them opportunities to buy more of the things that they do like or try some of the things that are potentially good add-ons to the things they've already bought. And I think lifetime value is the ultimate measure, right? Mm-hmm. The, if you can get someone to buy from you once, fantastic. If you can get someone to buy for you from you four or five times a year. Now, now you have a business that's sustainable and you don't have to necessarily spend all that money on acquiring that customer. So I would say lifetime value is probably the most important metric for most e-com businesses. Um, and if you ask me on a different day, I might have a different, <laughs> a different answer on this. But, but for today, I would say that I think those are your, your need to knows. Definitely. Um, so I think that concludes our topic of the week, which moves wow. us into. Let's stop. I feel like, you know, for our first podcast, we've covered a lot of ground already. We have, and I hope we don't mess it up. Okay. I feel like you're Howard Stern and I'm like his sidekick. I think her name is Robin. She doesn't talk that much. I feel like Robin, her. Robin, right. Studio. All right. Well, next, um, next episode, we'll make you talk a lot more. I'm sure that everybody will love that. Nervous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in terms of the marketing nozzle, this goes out to Amazon this week, and that is for giving brands one extra touch point of promotion to the customer from the new manager customer engagement tool. You do see me if you're watching this on YouTube. I'm looking off to the side because that's where my notes are because I'm not with my screen until I move. Um, and in terms of the marketing malfunction, I'm going to give this one a Lululemon. And okay. I- <laughs> I'm going to pause real quick. I want you to explain to everybody what the marketing malfunction is because this is going to be like a weekly thing for them. So what yeah. can they look forward to? So the mazel is basically a win. Like somebody did something right. The malfunction is a fail. And what? I think strongly that Lululemon is giving us a fail right now. Uh-oh. I think it's kind of gross. Tell them about it. <laughs> they are receiving the marketing malfunction this week for reselling like new gear. So what no. that means is customers will soon be able to return gently used Lululemon gear as part of its resale initiative, like new in exchange for store credit. Why? According to Jeffrey's data, I guess it's like a marketing research firm of sorts, the resale market rakes in about $30 billion a year and will represent over 10% of the apparel market over the next 10 years. Wow. Number two is resale is especially important to younger customers who are all about shopping used. Here's my issue with that. <laughs> I want to hear it. Here's my issue. Let's go. Okay. They are mainly targeting millennials who, again, as millennials age out and we become older, we're no longer in our 20s really anymore. We're more so in our 30s. Hell, maybe even early 40s if you're really pushing it. 
they might have the income to buy their own new pants. And I feel like I'm the only one remembering that we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's called COVID. I don't know why anyone wants someone else's sweaty ass gym shorts. That's <laughs> disgusting. It makes no sense. I think it's very grimy. And I feel like Lululemon is also like an aspirational brand. Like who wants to buy something like re it's not like a Louis Vuitton where it's like a luxury item that like, is not on personal parts of your body. It just makes no sense to me. I think it's a fail and I think it's just weird. I understand the sustainability angle, but like H&M does it where they'll take like old clothes and like repurpose them, the fibers, the fabric, the materials, they make it into something new. That's all well and good. I'm about that. But this, I feel like it's reaching and I'm not here for it. Your thoughts? Interesting. Wow. So I might disagree with you uh, for once, which I think is good for, for ratings. For sure. <laughs> so That's what we're all about here. Yeah, that's uh, for, for my mom listening and that, that one friend from Bangalore. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get our numbers up. I'm sure we will. Um, you know, it, this is kind of a can't miss if you're Lululemon, right? Sustainability is this huge value right now that some brands probably really don't give a shit about, if I can be so frank, but they know it's going to score them points, so they are you know put the check mark in the box. Lululemon has realized that they can do that and buy into a chunk of a $30 billion annual sure. business without really very much. So, so I think there's, it, it makes good business sense, literally in a dollars and cents perspective, people are going to buy more of the stuff, but also from the sustainability check mark in the box. Mm -hmm. The third part is, I, so I do agree to the extent, yeah, this is not a Louis Vuitton brand, but Lululemon is still an aspirational brand for a lot of, um, I will say lower to middle income millennials or, or maybe even some higher income ones, but, but it is an aspirational brand. And I think there is something to be said for something that really is truly lightly used, cleaned to the nines, which I imagine is going to be a big, I hope so. We, we do hope so. <laughs> I hope and, so. And then someone gets themselves into, you know, a Lululemon versus, you know, perhaps a, an Amazon brand or, you know, or some other store brand that makes them feel, um, good about, you know, the, the thing that they're wearing, good about themselves. And it's also, I think, sort of what like Mercedes did um, originally with the C-Class and now all of the other smaller models. But it's just like, if we're a premium brand, we want to get people in at the lowest common denominator. And now all of a sudden I'm wearing, wearing Lululemon. Tomorrow, yeah, maybe, you know, $120 on a pair of yoga pants uh, that are brand new isn't so bad because these used ones I have are pretty good and I would like them in another color. I'm still not feeling it. Only our YouTube members. I hear you. I hear you. My face. I'm disgusted. Does they? <laughs> my uh, great hip hop artist friend said that if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. It's true. Dollars, and ergo, it makes sense. God, I hope so. But I guess that concludes our episode. So thank you everyone for listening and for watching for our YouTube subscribers, which I hope we get important. But while we're while we're on it, do we know what we're uh, we're going to show them? and tell them next week. So next week's episode will cover e-commerce um, and what makes a website shoppable. So I'm Nicole. That is and important. And I'm, uh, and I'm David Berry. <laughs> In case you forgot. Yeah. And I'll and let you end it. Yeah, this was the, the marketing moment with Deviant Partners and subscribe. And we'll, we'll talk to you guys in a week. Thanks so much for joining. Bye guys.